and welcome to the Belt and Road podcast, where we cover the latest news, research, and analysis on China's growing presence in the developing world. I'm your host, Eric Meister Eno, uh, coming to you today from a still sheltered in place and going maybe uh, slightly crazy, uh, but nice, uh, Durham, North Carolina. Today with me, as always, is the wonderful Juliet Liu. Juliet, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, Eric. Thanks. Also sheltered in place, but there are fewer restrictions now. <laughs> So we're enjoying the outdoors a little bit more. Yeah, for better or worse. I've seen right. uh, passed by too many restaurants where too many people are quite close without masks. Mm-hmm. But before we begin, I'd like to remind everyone that if you want to stay up to date on the latest news, research, and analysis on the Belt and Road Initiative, uh, you can follow our uh, Twitter feed and our Facebook page at Belt and Road Pod. Our guest today is a professor in the School of International Studies at Beida, otherwise known as Peking University. Professor Shuliang approaches the topic of Chinese investments in Africa from a unique angle that we don't usually get to feature on this podcast. He's trained as a historian, but he also conducted a considerable amount of ethnographic work in Newcastle, South Africa during his PhD. His combination of a historical lens and time spent in South Africa embedded in the communities that he studied gives him a longer-term view of Chinese investments in South Africa than that which we normally get to feature. It also reminds us that Chinese capital has long flowed into and shaped development trajectories of countries across Africa, and also that the patterns of investment we see today are rooted in deeper historical trajectories. Shuliang focuses not only on investors from mainland China, but also on a range of ethnically Chinese entrepreneurs from other places, including Hong Kong, Taiwan, Singapore, and beyond. So in this interview, we'll focus specifically on a recent paper he published that focuses on the city of Newcastle, where over 70 ethnic Chinese garment manufacturing firms were established in the 1980s and 1990s. In the article, he describes Newcastle's success as a local manifestation of South Africa's national effort to break isolation and to attract East Asian industrialists. And this is a process still ongoing today, and also one which laid the foundations for current pathways of Chinese investment and South Africa's industrialization. Shuliang, uh, welcome to the Belt and Road podcast. Hi, Eric. Hi, Juliet. Uh, it's a Hi. great honor and pleasure to be here today. I know, Juliet, we've been talking about doing this uh, for almost <laughs> like six or seven months, and finally yeah. we're here today. Thank you so exactly. much for inviting me and having me here today. Thank you. First, to start off, how did you come to focus on China's relationship in South Africa? I actually didn't have any special sort of relationship or experience living in South Africa. But then when I was a student at Peking University here in Beijing, I studied with a very well-known uh, Africanist scholar, uh, Professor Lian San, for my first graduate degree. At that time, I focused on Japan-South Africa relations. Uh, but unfortunately, at that time, I didn't even manage to go to South Africa. So most of my work uh, was done here in Beijing and also in Japan. So I used some Japanese documents. Because back then, when I was looking at Japan-Africa relations, of course, South Africa is one of the most important countries for Japan because of the bilateral trading minerals and also because of the unique apartheid history. And Japan was criticized by some scholars of being a supporter to the regime at that time. So that was my first connection to the country of South Africa. But when I was uh, a student in the U.S. in 2011, I visited South Africa for the first time in my life. And I just found so many similarities between South Africa and the United States. Of course, because of its multiracial, multicultural uh, society, but also because of history of segregation, racial segregation, right? Mm -hmm. And also, I mean, I found it's very 
interesting that both countries have good infrastructure. Both countries are, as we say, on the wheels. So everyone drives a car, right? Yeah. <laughs> But it's very similar. And also for my own background, I also found it's interesting that in both countries, Asian or Chinese community were considered as a minority. And, and in both countries, Asian community or, or Chinese community were discriminated or marginalized in, in the yeah. past. So all these factors began to draw me in to the study of South Africa. So that's why I think I began to, to be interested in the country, its history and everything. But I think it was also 2011 when I first visited South Africa, I read a local newspaper headline report about uh, Newcastle Chinese factories, especially, I mean, I still remember the title of that article. It says, employers go on strike. I was, what? Employees strike? What is that? And all these Chinese, where, where, where are they from? Why they ended up in this place called Newcastle? Uh, so that's why I decided to make a trip to Newcastle myself. And ever since, uh, Newcastle became just my interest and, and eventually my dissertation topic. Yeah, I loved when you told me that story, I guess, the first time we met um, of, of, of first studying Japan and, and, and South Africa and then switching to studying China, China and South Africa. And that brings me to like, yeah, your, your approach is you take a historical approach. You were trained as a historian and And you often hear that Chinese interventions in the African continent are new, that China is the new player um, in Africa. But while those framings suggest that Chinese actors weren't involved in African countries in the colonial era and, and just in the post-colonial era as well, you know, what I understand from your and others' work is that you know, certain Chinese communities have had really extended engagement, in, in particularly in South Africa, where your research was focused. So you've gotten into it a little bit already. But can you give us a few more in broad strokes, the history of China's engagements with South Africa as it kind of relates to the research that you that you explored? So that's a good question, because my my interest and my focus is primarily uh, about Chinese migration in South Africa. But if you look at the Chinese migration in South Africa, it does have a long history. And I think many scholars have uh, written on this subject before. Um, if we look at the 20th century, we can definitely distinguish three major waves of Chinese migration in South Africa. I mean, the first major wave was in the early 1900s when mm. the British imported uh, over 60,000 indentured labor from China, mainly from northern part of China, as gold miners in Johannesburg. And most of these mm. people were repatriated back to China after the experiment was over. So that was the first major wave. Of course, if you trace the, 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 the very beginning of Chinese migration in South Africa, you could trace back all the way to the 17th century when the first sort of group of Chinese, usually slaves, came to South Africa with the Dutch. But that at that time, the number is very small. So it's not as major as we were talking about the 60,000 gold miners in the early 20th century. Mm. And the second major wave was in the 1970s and 80s, I think mainly 1980s, when the apartheid government invited, actually using a lot of incentives and generous policies to attract East Asian industrialists, mainly from Taiwan and Hong Kong, which is part of my own research. I think at, the, at its peak, the number of Taiwanese people in South Africa uh, was close to 30,000, according to some scholars, wow. especially uh, Yun Jun Park, uh, who is a pioneer in, in, in the study of Chinese migration in South Africa. So that was the second major wave. And the, the, the third um, and the last major wave started from the 1990s, when we begin to see big influx of migrants from mainland China. And this group of Chinese has very diverse background. 
you know, you, you see professionals working for state-owned enterprises or big-name companies, but you also see uh, what we call the grassroots-level migrants. And you also see small to medium-sized sort of factory owners or business owners. Uh, so this last uh, major wave of, of Chinese migration in South Africa is, is still an ongoing phenomenon and which I personally was very interested in. Yeah, the history of Chinese migration is fascinating. And you've written about this in other places. Like you have a piece, a chapter on Cyril Dean Chinatown. You make this case that this that Chinese migrants in, in Johannesburg were actually... Um, kind of set up a community that defies stereotypes of Chinese ethnic enclaves, that, that the community there actually interacts really bright, vibrantly with host country society. Have you spent much time in Cyrildine? And, and was that one of the, the migrant communities that you were studying? Uh, Cyrildine is always an interesting place. Uh, and I always go to Cyrildine whenever I was in South Africa, especially when I spent time in Johannesburg. For those of you who've been to Joburg, Johannesburg, um, actually there are two Chinatowns in the city. The old old Chinatown is situated in the downtown area, but that Chinatown usually is for uh, the what they call the, the South African-born Chinese SABCs. So the new migrants don't usually go there, and the 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 Cyrodin mm. Chinatown I think began to emerge and thrive in in the 1990s and become apparently a, an attraction for the newcomers from China. Yes, I did some research about the Cyrodin Chinatown uh, when I was in Joburg. Whenever I go to South Africa, I must spend some time in Cyrodin Chinatown, uh, eating Chinese meals with friends and also visiting uh, <laughs> uh, several friends uh, who live and do business there. In my view, this Cyrodin Chinatown is very unique and interesting because on the one hand, it does reflect the changes during the post-apartheid era in South Africa, especially for major South African cities, we witness a process of suburbanization. So the, the, the major businesses are moving from the center of the town to the suburbs. And Cyrodin Chinatown is one of those suburbs began to attract businesses in the 1990s and began to thrive because of the new arrivals from China. On the other hand, it, it, the location itself is very interesting because it's very close to the highway which connects the Chinatown and the airport. So it's very convenient location mm. for those Chinese business people. And it's also on the major highway uh, to Durban, which is a major port. When the Chinese goods come to South Africa, they get offloaded in Durban and transported directly to jo Joburg and very easily to the Cyrodin Chinatown as well. So when I was there, I see the Chinatown not as the what we usually call the ghetto, area for marginalized ethnic groups, right? We, we, we talk about ghettos mm. in the U.S. context and in other uh, immigrant societies. Uh, but the Cyrodin Chinatown connects to different areas of the city in very interesting ways. Of course, it connected to multiple China malls in Joburg City. Um, those big malls are retail and wholesale centers organized and, and operated by Chinese business people. It also connected to major Chinese residential areas around Chinatown area and, and across the city, the Joburg city. And also when you go to Cyrodin Chinatown, you will see that most of those Chinese shops and businesses uh, in Cyrodin Chinatown uh, employ local African workers. Some of them are local South African employees and some of them actually from uh, neighboring countries, from Zimbabwe, from Lesotho, from Malawi. So it also connects to the regional economy. Those people work in the Cyrodin Chinatown. They earn money and send back to their 
home countries support their families. And also you see other non-Chinese, other Asian shops. You know, you, you see people from the Philippines, from other Southeast Asian countries. They also organize and, and operating shops in Seroudin Ch- Chinatown. And the most interesting thing I found in Seroudin Chinatown is uh, different and various Chinese associations. People often criticize the municipal government of Johannesburg of being incompetent, you know, managing and maintaining uh, facilities and, and sanitation and everything. So several of those Chinese, what I call the self-governing associations, began to operate and manage the daily operation of the, of the Chinatown. Sanitation, you know, uh, also policing in, in some, to some certain extent to avoid criminal activities. They also work with the local police officers. Uh, they actually have a small police officer center in Seroudin Chinatown to make sure that uh, violent and criminal activities can be avoided. So th- this little Chinatown is connected to the larger Johannesburg uh, metropolitan uh, city in different and interesting ways. And that's why I decided to write a, a side paper, a small paper on it, and, and eventually it got published. Moving on to the article of focus that we have today, the Factory Family and Industrial Frontier article, can you tell us a little bit about setting the scene of Newcastle? Uh, you, know, you refer to Newcastle as an example of the often neglected middle layer of China-African engagement. I, can you expand on that uh, idea? Yes. I, I, when you say Newcastle as an example of the often neglected middle layer of China-African engagement, I mean, I think as a China-Africa researcher uh, these days, I often feel frustrated and, and feel inadequate in some way, because, I mean, the whole China-Africa thing has, has going so fast. It has so many different dimensions. And uh, to keep yourself updated on all those dimensions becomes very difficult. But if you look at the macro picture of China-Africa, especially Chinese engagement in Africa, somehow we can distinguish three sort of different layers of engagement. Right? On, on the very top level, it's a state-level engagement. Usually involves Chinese state or diplomacy and sometimes involve state-owned enterprises, oftentimes involving big state capital. And also on the bottom layer, uh, we, we see some people guess that there are actually over a million Chinese migrants on the ground in, in Africa. So we see this massive grassroots-level uh, Chinese migrants coming to, to, our, to Africa, to different African countries, in fact, and they also generate profound implications for the future of China-Africa relations. But what is often neglected is the middle layer, what I try to focus in my own research, which is the private industrial capital. So those mm-hmm. small to medium-sized manufacturing firms or, or companies. Of course, over the last several years, we began to see scholars focusing on factories, and small businesses in and Chinese small business in Africa, uh, but I think most of the research up to now has focused on the industrial parks, for example, in Ethiopia and other countries where Chinese companies collaborate with local African government to operate uh, export-oriented industrial parks. Um, and in Newcastle, of course, the whole industry originated from a state. Uh, industrial policy uh, during the apartheid era, but now most of those industries are just on their own. They, they, they receive no government preferential policies or incentives. They survive on a daily basis in, in, in a business sense. 
So that's why I said, I mean, this often neglected middle layer of China-Africa engagement is those private industrial capital or what I call the small to medium-sized manufacturing firms and companies in Africa. And because the number of those companies have been growing very fast over the last, I'd say, 10 years, according to a recent report published by the McKinsey company, the consulting company, the number of Chinese firms in Africa uh, has exceeded 10,000. And 90% of those companies are privately owned companies. And a third of them are in the manufacturing sector. And they employ numerous local African workers and also cause a lot of uh, interesting dynamics in terms of labor capital relations. Yeah, this is, I think when you call it a middle layer, I think it's exactly right. And and the other aspect of your research that fascinates me um, is that, you know, you're talking about a beginning of a wave of Chinese investment that's, that's actually happening in the 1980s. Mm. So this is many years ago. And you write that between 1987 and 1995, at least 90 factories were established in Newcastle. And of those 90 factories, 70 were ethnic Chinese firms. Mm. So what were the circumstances? What, what, what led up to this boom in investment? How did 70 Chinese firms start um, become attracted specifically to Newcastle? So uh, between 1987 and 1990, most of those ethnic Chinese firms are actually not from mainland China. And they were from mainly from uh, Taiwan and some of them from Hong Kong. And I, I think one um, is actually from Singapore. So that's why I called those companies as ethnic Chinese firms. Now, why these companies came to Newcastle is an interesting question, because at the very beginning of the 1980s, South Africa, because of its apartheid policy, was facing increasing international isolation and sanctions from major Western countries. And at that time, South Africa also had this policy called border industry policy. When I say border here, Mm -hmm. it's not the national border between South Africa and its neighboring countries but between what they call the white South Africa and the black homelands. Mm. The black homelands are supposed to be independent states by themselves. So each black ethnic group in South Africa has the right to establish its own Bantustan or its own independent state. Mm. So the border areas is being between uh, white South Africa and those black homelands. Now, in order for those black homelands to be economically viable, you have to establish industries, especially labor in, labor-intensive industries in those border areas to absorb black population as industrial labor in those areas. And I remember I just said that at that time, South Africa was facing increasing international isolation and sanction. It was very difficult for the apartheid government to attract foreign investment from major Western countries. That's why the, the apartheid government turned east to attract industrialists from Taiwan and Hong Kong. And it became such a great success in the 1980s, especially starting from the mid-1980s. We began to see an increasing number of Taiwanese firms coming to South Africa. And in this race for Asian investment, Newcastle was the most successful town uh, in, at that time, the white South Africa. And it attracted the the largest number of Taiwanese firms um, during this time. And when you say that, what's, what was the circumstances at the time? I mean, one of the reasons why these companies uh, come to South Africa and come to Newcastle uh, was actually because the huge subsidies provided by the South African apartheid government. You know, there are three major subsidies. On, on, um, uh, firstly, it was a financial rand where you can actually exchange for the South African currency um, back to the US dollar with a very favorable uh, exchange rate. I think double than the international 
market. So you yeah. actually can make a lot of money just by trading currencies among those uh, uh, Taiwanese industries. The second major subsidy was the wage subsidy. And up to 95% of the workers' wage was subsidized by the South African government at the time. So essentially the, oh, gov- yes, essentially, the government was paying all the workers. And finally, the right. uh, South African government provided a very generous uh, family relocation package to those Taiwanese and Hong Kong uh, industrialists. So they were given very nice uh, housing discounts. They were giving also very easy approval for permanent residency or South African citizenship. And all these uh, subsidies continued until the early 1990s, uh, right before uh, the end of apartheid. So that's why during the 1980s and early 1990s, there was a huge number of Taiwanese industries coming to uh, South Africa, including Newcastle. You've, you've gone over a, a little bit of this already, but later in the paper, you know, you distinguish between three different types of ethnic Chinese factories, uh, the mm. Hong Kong exporters, Taiwanese knitting firms, and then later on from there, you just spoke of uh, more mainland Chinese cut, make, and trims, or CMT firms came into play. Mm. Uh, what are the important differences between these three from the perspective of your study? Well, that's, that's a very good question. I, I think that's also one of the original contributions I make in my research, because if you look at the discussion and debates in South Africa about Chinese uh, factories, because oftentimes Chinese factories were criticized as the uh, sweatshops, exploitative, but oftentimes scholars and policymakers uh, treat Chinese factories as a unitary term without differentiating different types of Chinese factories in South Africa. So when I did my research in Newcastle, I tried to distinguish different types of Chinese factories in in, in the area. So uh, I I go to interview people and talk to people, especially those business owners, and I found there are three major groups or subgroups of Chinese factories in town. The first one uh, was the big firms. I call them the big exporters, usually owned by the Hong Kongese business owners. And there is one very big Singaporean producer as well. So there are four major exporters to be operating in Newcastle. But in the mid-2000s, all of those four big exporters uh, actually closed their factories and left the area. Mm. And the second subgroup uh, is the Taiwanese knitting firms. You know, remember those big exporters usually producing for the export market, usually the U.S. and European market. Now, if you think of those, some of those big uh, brand names like the Levi's, Lee's, those jeans, and, and some of those products were produced in Newcastle at that time. And these exports usually employ over 2,000 or 3,000 workers in the factory, each of them. And the, and the Taiwanese knitting firms uh, are of a smaller scale, but they are operating in a different manner. And most of those Taiwanese knitting firms are family firms, small family firms. So when they came to South Africa in the 1980s and early 1990s, the whole family moved to South Africa. And usually both the female and, and male members of the family get involved in the production process. And usually they can employ up to a thousand or, or several hundred workers. Uh, but now when I was doing research there, uh, these are smaller operations compared uh, to the 1980s and early 90s. Usually they employ up to 100 or, or, or a maximum 200, and but usually 50 to 60 workers. These are smaller operations. And finally, the, the third subgroup is the mainland Chinese CMT firms. And this is really actually the focus of my research. And these are 
medium-sized firms producing mainly for the domestic market, the South African market. And the Taiwanese knitting firms in the 1980s and early 1990s also produced for the actual market, but, but also producing for the domestic market. And now the Taiwanese knitting firms are mainly producing for the domestic market. And CMT firms, all of them, almost all of them are producing for the local and domestic market. And the, mm-hmm. and, and the interesting about the CMT firms, the mainland Chinese CMT firms, uh, is how they organize their business on the basis of a, a production couple relationship. That's the next thing I was going to ask about. There were points in your, uh, the, the amazing thing about when someone's done ethnographic and historical research is that you get these bursts of, of really fascinating social relations that you describe in the article. And yeah, there's points where I feel like it, I'm reading a tabloid that's being described in academic terms. Um, but, you know, one of those points was, um, you make this point, right, that Chinese factories flourish in Newcastle oftentimes because these CMT firms are run by couples or what you call like production couple relationships. And you, you say that the, this is quoting you, the, the primary function of such partnerships is for the purpose of business production. And you call this as utilitarian familialism. <laughs> some of these, as I understand, some of these relationships are are transported from the home home country that, you know, a, a couple comes to South Africa to open up their firm. But you also kind of describe these arising organically in the Newcastle context. Can you tell us um, a little bit about how do these production couple relationships arise and then how do they function as, as you say, primarily for the purpose of business production? but still with this romantic kind of partnership element. Uh, yes, I think that's also one of the uh, original contributions I think I make uh, I made in this research project. And as, I, as, as I was saying that uh, I began to distinguish three different subgroups of Chinese factories in Newcastle. And one of the things that really interests me is the structure of the business. For example, if you look at the big exporters, these are also owned by a business family. But usually, for example, for the Hong Kongese big firms in Newcastle, the business owner, the factory business owner, is usually not present in Newcastle. They were sent a professional mm-hmm. manager there to manage the operation of the company. And if you look at the Taiwanese knitting firms in Newcastle, as I was saying, these are family business. And every member of the family got involved in the business and sometimes also involve the second generation uh, in the family. And if you look at that CMT, the mainland Chinese CMT firms, you will see that oftentimes was owned by a man and a woman. And that man and that woman were in a very special relationship. Usually we call them, uh, uh, they, they, they were in a, a very stable boyfriend and girlfriend relationship. But the interesting thing is that both of them would have families and spouses back in China. But for the sake of business success abroad, they compress themselves uh, within a very interesting semi-family structure, which I call the production couple relationship, because they are, as a matter of fact, in a boyfriend-girlfriend relationship. And they are both uh, business partners uh, in operating uh, their clothing and garment uh, business in Newcastle. Now, people might ask, well, why this happened? Now, we have to understand both the garment business and the history of Chinese migration in Newcastle. Now, if you go to a clothing business, a clothing factory, as soon as you step into the shop floor, you will see that there are two people who are very important for the business. And you know, One person is the mechanic who maintains the machinery, you know, those sewing machines and the cutting machines. Mm-hmm. And usually that mechanic is a Chinese man. And the other person who is also very equally important is the 
uh, production line supervisor who would pipeline the received order and also give instructions to the Zulu workers in this area, right? With, to teach them how to, to sew in a sense. And these two people over time, when they accumulated some capital and manage, management experiences, they can form a partnership and spin off from their employer and start their own business. Now, that's actually, that expands the rapid proliferation of the number of Chinese factories in Newcastle in the 2000s. Now, the second reason I think is a historical reason, because when we're talking about the Hong Kongese, the Taiwanese, they were invited in the 1980s by the apartheid South Africa government with the generous family relocation package. So they actually moved as family in the 1980s. And then they employed or they recruited management staff from mainland China, usually the mechanic and production line supervisors, and usually male mechanic and female production line supervisors. And these people were not invited as industrialists. They came as employees, tried to, as we say in Chinese, uh, to make a living and earn mm. some money and send back home to support their families. And, but but uh, over time, they began to form this boyfriend-girlfriend relationship within the same, comp- the same factory or different factories, across different factories. And over time, especially in the early 2000s, they began to spin off and establish their own businesses. It's actually very interesting. And uh, the local people, although, I mean, people know this is an open secret, but you don't discuss those issues freely and publicly. You have to secretly ask people during... Uh, drinking banquet <laughs> or yeah. uh, during smoking time about those re- relationships. But that's very, very interesting. And uh, I, I managed to talk to several couples about their relationship. And I call them a radical form of Chinese family business. And the interesting thing about this relationship is the factory, and if we call this protection couple as a family structure, is that those two became mutually constitutive. For example, if the new business got established, the production couple as business owners, they will also recruit new mechanic and new production line supervisors. And mm-hmm. these people also over, can also, uh, over time, can form uh, new production couples and spin off and establish new closing business. So in a sense, it becomes a cycle, reinforcing each other, family and factory. Yeah, it, it just gets into this fascinating division that you you hear kind of recurring in, in, in ethnography of, of Chinese labor of the difference between f- fulfilling your family responsibilities in terms of your economic contributions as opposed to, you know, the just living a life together in quality time side. You, you, you mentioned um, in the article that they both partners will actually use the factory generated wealth to fulfill their parental or spousal obligations in their families back in China, but then they'll keep their de facto husband wife relationship mm-hmm functioning in the context of South Africa. It's just, yeah, it's fascinating. Um, sorry, Eric, go ahead. Uh, well, first, I was just, just seconding how all the best uh, qualitative field work happens over banquets and uh, over smokes. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> um, yes, they, they, they don't address them uh, as wife and husband in those banquet times. They address them as girlfriend <laughs> yeah. and boyfriend. Yes. Or, and they get oh, toasted together, they sit together. It was very interesting social setting. Hmm. Right. And, and so you align yourself with a number of other scholars who see this utilitarian familialism as distinctly Chinese. 
Um, what does this unique approach to business mean on the ground? I mean, does it have implications for how these factories function as a variety of capital, um, as for labor relations are organized on the shop floor? What impact does this type of a family business have on the economic development and the garment sector in Newcastle? Now, as I was saying that, of course, this is an open secret, but direct con- direct conversation about those relationships uh, can be difficult. But I managed to conduct a little survey in one of those industrial areas, and I found that over 60% of the CMT firms uh, were built uh, upon this uh, special arrangement, special partnership. And that 60% as a number is actually quite um, illuminating because it does show that this is something that has larger social economic significance, right? It's not something happened like randomly. And in my view, uh, by compressing themselves within this special quasi-family structure, these people uh, can engage in, in, in social settings instead of being condemned and discriminated as sort of the outlier or isolated by other normal family business uh, owners. So for example, they can um, join you know, banquet, they can socialize with other business owners. For example, you, you often see the, the, the men, uh, they, they would go golfing during weekends and the women uh, usually would, do, would, would play mahjong and other uh, shopping activities during uh, their free time. So they are not social outcasts in a sense. By maintaining this stable boyfriend-girlfriend relationship, uh, they can also uh, cultivate the, the family business network, which is very important for the success of business overseas, especially among those uh, Chinese immigrants. Now, is the Newcastle story unique or special? Uh, I don't think so. I, I do think that we need to place this production couple phenomenon in a larger uh, context. For example, uh, if we look at the history of Chinese migration overseas, we do see this phenomenon of secondary family, especially among uh, Chinese mm-hmm. migrants in Southeast Asian countries. I mean, Juliet, you must know better than I do. For example, in, in, in the early centuries, we have this term called the Nanyang family or the, the, the South Sea family. Right. And also, they also maintain mm-hmm. a China family back home. And for those wealthy business people, they might be able to maintain multiple families in Nanyang, right? And also, if we look at the contemporary Chinese migration overseas, for example, in Joburg, uh, some scholars have done research about Chinese uh, business people in, in Joburg, especially in Chinatown and China malls. Uh, and there is a saying that uh, there are certain questions you should not ask about your Chinese fellow. Uh, I think people listed six questions not to ask. And one of those six questions is never ask who that man or woman next to, the ch- to that Chinese fellow is. So never ask. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, apparently there are, uh, this phenomenon is prevalent uh, among uh, some of those Chinese business uh, communities abroad. They form sort of temporary couples for the success of business and also for emotional survival as well, I think. I, I think in, even in China, starting from the 1990s, I guess, uh, we began to see this phenomenon of temporary couples, or in Chinese, we call them a fuqi, temporary couples among migrant workers mm-hmm. in urban areas. And it became a, a very hot topic uh, for public debate and discussion, I think in 2013 when a National Congress 
representative, a female uh, National People's Congress representative, mentioned the phenomenon, who herself was a migrant worker, and mentioned about this phenomenon of temporary couples among migrant workers in Chinese cities. So we see that when migrants move to other areas for economic uh, purposes, leaving their families behind, oftentimes we see this kind of phenomenon emerge out of business reasons, out of emotional survival reasons. So I don't think the Newcastle experience is unique. Uh, It does reflect the sort of overall trajectory of how family is created in different and flexible circumstances. Yeah, I mean, it does sound completely practical on some level and and just to have formed organically out of out of the, the practical aspects of the situation. And I'm interested in also talking a little bit about kind of the other side of these developments, the ways in which Chinese factories approach labor management. And you you talk a lot about how this, you know, the, the Chinese factories kind of shaped Zulu, the role of Zulu women in their society and in the home through their engagement and work in these factories and and you know the the ways that that Chinese capital in that sense is 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 recreating gender relations and pathways of socioeconomic change in Newcastle. Mm. Can you give us a sense of of what what some of those changes look like, and then what are the bro- broader in- implications for Zulu labor um, in Newcastle and kind of broader South African trajectories of development that you see as influenced by this Chinese approach to factory management? Mm. First of all, I'd like to give a little bit of background of uh, female participation in industrialization in South Africa. I think until until the 1960s, Black South African women were largely excluded from wage labor. And we began to see women, uh, especially Black South African women, entering factories starting from the 1970s and 80s. And if you remember the timing of the arrival of ethnic Chinese firms in South Africa, it coincided with yeah it, it it coincided with the Black South African women's entry into modern factories. So as a matter of fact, many of those uh, Black South African women ended up working in those Chinese uh, ethnic Chinese factories. One of the things about Black, especially in my research area, where most of those people were Zulu people local people. Um, If you look at the history, especially when it comes to gender dynamics, a lot of those Zulu men uh, used to have access to industrial jobs, especially in the mines, those uh, heavy industries. And starting from the mid-1970s, at that time was a major economic slowdown. Those big industries and also white-owned farms began to lay off people, especially black South African men. So uh, starting from the late 1970s, Zulu men began to lose the jobs they used to have. And one of the direct consequences of that is these Black South African men are not only becoming the underclass of the society, but also began to lose the socioeconomic foundation and became what I call the unwanted spouses as well. So that's why when those women facing this kind of situation where men will no longer uh, have this socioeconomic conditions to form families. And, and also this is also a time when black Zulu women begin to enter factories and earn an income. They formed sort of what I call the female linked families. So usually in Newcastle, when you go to those uh, Zulu women workers home, you will see that. Usually there is a grandma, a daughter or son, and grandchildren. But you don't see 
the father figure or the husband figure. Now, in a typical Zulu women family in the area, usually one woman would go and work in the Chinese factories, and the other woman would stay back and looking after the kids and also the house chores. So in that way, they use and leverage these female-linked families to survive and also to uh, produce and reproduce as as a family. And that's why they can afford the low wages in those factories. When I say low wages, I'm not really actually blaming those Chinese uh, business owners. I do think that the garment industry globally is becoming a low-profit industry with cutthroat competition. So, of course, those workers are surviving uh, on a low low wage. But on the other hand, if you look at those factory owners, the production couples, they're also surviving in a very sort of marginalized and low-profit segment of the factory. So they're also surviving uh, in a business sense. Uh, That's why I think uh, eventually the, the message I want to deliver in the research is that if you compare production couple relationship and the female linked family structure uh, among the Zulu workers, essentially both the Chinese industrialists and the Zulu women workers, they are in the same boat. I do think the, the, the whole industry needs government support and policy support uh, from, from, from above. Of course, I mean, those low wage industry is not a glorious one, but in a, in, in a country like South Africa, where the unemployment, un, unemployment rate uh, is as high as 40%. You do need those labor-intensive industries to create jobs and employment for those poor people. No, I mean, the the, the the parallels that you draw are really interesting, I think. And what you're describing, I think, in the garment sector globally, the little I know, it does sound like the comparison you make and the, the kind of contextualizing you do for these the Chinese family firms, it's important to see that they're they're operating on very thin profit margins as well. And that's that's an interesting aspect. On on the labor treatment, I do think there are a lot of controversies. I, when I was doing research in South Africa, I came across a, cul- a couple of scandals in the 1980s and early 1990s. One of those scandals was in one of those closing factories uh, during um, a night shift, because at that time when uh, workers work on night shift, the, the, the gate of the factory was closed. And there is a pregnant mother, expecting mother, who I think uh, was expecting two twins. And uh, I think during the night shift, the, the woman started to labor due to the wow. fact that they didn't get medical support in a timely manner. Both the mother and the, and the twins um, died. And that became a very big scandal. And Chinese factories in the areas got criticized um, in, in, in newspapers and in other public uh, debates. And another scandal was, I think, was in a Taiwanese factory uh, where the employer used the electric parts to discipline those workers. So uh, I think in the, in the early years, especially in the 1980s and early 1990s, there were reports about bad treatments uh, of uh, local workers by Chinese, ethnic Chinese employees. But I think those very harsh and brutal treatment will no longer exist uh, in those Chinese factories mm. now in Newcastle. With that, I'm not saying that there are no problems in terms of labor treatment in those factories. For example, uh, I still see some, not all of them, some Chinese factory owners would shout using swear words when they communicate with their workers. Oftentimes, the 
work hours tend to be very long, and the facilities, the the shop floors, those uh, I mean, when you, when we talk about sanitation and 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 other things, they are not perfect. They they are definitely places right. that need to be improved. And also in terms of, uh, I think one of the biggest debates in in South Africa about those Chinese factories is the wages. And uh, there are multiple rounds of negotiation and bargaining between uh, the workers, the trade unions, and the Chinese factory owners about the minim- minimum wages. Um, and apparently, as I was saying, those factories are surviving also on a very low profit margin. They, of course, didn't want to raise the minimum wage too much to stay alive, especially in a business sense, right? Um, so they they, they, right. they came up with different and sometimes creative ways to bypass some of those minimum wage regulations. Not all of those factories, but there are a couple of factories in the Newcastle area try to use the cooperative mechanism to bypass minimum wage regulations. Uh, I, I, I encounter a couple of factories in Newcastle. Uh, they encourage their workers to organize into a co-op because co-op are not subject to those uh, minimum wage regulation, they can decide on the wages by the workers themselves. And the Chinese companies became a company that receives order and then outsource to the co-op for operation. Uh, So there are different ways and creative ways of measures that the Chinese industrialists uh, in Newcastle uh, used to bypass certain regulations they consider unfair and uh, to stay alive for their business. Yeah, really, really wonderful, really uh, fascinating uh, research and work. Uh, Shuliang, thank you so much for for joining us. Uh, Will you stick around for recommendations? Yes, yes. You've been listening to the Belt and Road podcast. Today, we've been speaking with Dr. Shuliang and mainly speaking about his paper that came out in 2019's uh, Economic History of Developing Regions, volume number 34, called Factory, Family, and in the Industrial Frontier, Associated Economic Study of Chinese Clothing Firms in Newcastle, South Africa. And again, if you want to stay up to date on the latest news, research, and analysis on the Belt and Road Initiative, you can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Belt and Road Pod. Shuliang, do you have uh, some recommendations for our listeners today? Yeah, thank you, Eric. Uh, I do have a couple of books that I would like to recommend to our audience. The first book is a book by one of my favorite scholars, Ching Quan Li, who is a sociologist teaching uh, at UCLA. The title of the book is The Specter of Global China. So the book is talking about how different uh, Chinese state-owned capital in Africa behaves as opposed to global private capital. It's a a fascinating uh, book. Now, the second book is about South Africa, which gave me a lot of, or Southern Africa, which gave me a lot of inspirations when I was writing my dissertation. It was a book uh, written by a Stanford anthropologist uh, named James Ferguson. And the title of the book is Give a Man a Fish. It talks about the mm. current social, economic, and political dilemma a lot of uh, developing countries are facing, especially in the context of Southern Africa. Um, and it talks about how new distributive politics can emerge out of this. So I hope that those who are interested can read those two books uh, and can inspire you as you continue to think uh, about the issues of China, Africa, and other global challenges. Those both sound great. 
I had a similar, well, I had a book that reminded me of, of Xu Liang's work in the sense that it's about maybe not even middle level, but lower level kind of Chinese entrepreneurs going out into the world. It's called China's Silent Army. It was actually recommended to me many years ago. It's, it came out in 2014, so it's a bit old now. It was recommended by a good friend, Jen Brown, who used to live in Beijing for many years. Mm. But China's Silent Army is about kind of the unprecedented growth of China's economic investments in the developing world, which we talk about a lot. It's written by two journalists who across the globe looking for stories of individual Chinese people. Uh, you know, the silent army that they refer to uh, are the ordinary Chinese citizens working across the world in the oil industry in ta- Kazakhstan or mining minerals in the, in the Democratic Republic of Congo, delivering garments around the neighborhoods of Cairo. But it's it's really interesting. It's a lot of ethnography and it's it focuses on the experiences of ordinary Chinese who are going out. And the other recommendation I had was 13th, which is a 2016 American documentary by Ava DuVernay. Mm. And it's about the intersection of race, justice, and mass incarceration in the United States. So um, it's something that I've committed to, I committed to watching to give context to the current Black Lives Movement protests and and to educate myself a little bit more. It's, it's really fascinating. It's one of all, a lot of awards. Eric, what have you been pining over thinking through? Uh, quite quite a few things. Uh, my my first one, my first recommendation would be the uh, uh, a book, a, a Sinews of Power: Politics of the State Grid Corporation of China, uh, by uh, Shui Tong. Uh, it came out in twenty seventeen. It looks at the role and the rise of China's central state-owned enterprises through their many decades of uh, conglomerations, uh, and then also how. They work within the system that looks at state-owned enterprises and power between the systems of ownership, so it being state-owned, but then it's also decision-making authority. So how central state-owned enterprises can actually uh, work in and also outside of centralized regulations and have their own agency domestically and abroad that sometimes would go against Beijing's interests. So really fascinating, very, very molecular, in-depth look into one of the largest companies in the world. And then I haven't gotten to the 13th, the much more uh, uh, serious documentary, which I really want to watch. Uh, but my Netflix binging has been uh, much more light. Uh, a show called Magic for Humans. <laughs> it's a fun magic show uh, that's uh, it's contemporary, up, upbeat, and somewhat progressive. It's a comedian magician named Justin Willman. And that really goes out into street magic that shows the true diversity of Los Angeles. And everyone has fun situations based on the theme. And so it's it's more mature, really, he's really charismatic. It's not, you know, yesterday's magic and it's not David Blaine being over serious, but it's uh, really mind-blowing stuff. And it's a lot of fun to watch. Those are my recommendations. Awesome. Shuliang, uh, thank you so much for joining us again on the, on the Belt and Road podcast. Thank you, Eric. Thank you, Julian. It was great to have you, Julian.